Hi, Black Hollywood Live fans. Today, we have Apple versus the FBI, Kesha, and much more on Justice is Served. You are tuned in to Black Hollywood Live. Justice is Served. How apropos today. Work, work, work. Hello, Black Hollywood Live fans. This is Justice is Served. Welcome to another edition of the uh, our coverage, analysis, and perspective of the weekly uh, legal news that we think you should know about. I am joined by my now only co-host, Shaka Smith. We are down one man, it seems like permanently. Uh, BJ Abron has moved on to become a civil litigator. So now it's just the two of us. <laughs> We'll do our best to hold uh, it down and, um, and and get right to the issues in the news this week, shall we? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So the big, huge news is this whole uh, debate between Apple and the FBI. That Rihanna, we got... She, 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 she wants to come to work with it. Yeah. This is really apropos because here we have the FBI wanting Apple to basically work for, for them. Exactly. Yeah. So this all, this whole debacle started because of the San Bernardino shooters, or yeah. that's how it became really a big deal. Because yeah. this is not the first time that Apple has been asked by the FBI to help cooperate, participate in investigations by making cell phone data available. Yeah, pretty routine. So uh, the FBI wants the data from the phone of the man involved in the San Bernardino shootings. Yeah. Apparently, the FBI already has the iCloud backup of uh, his stuff, but it only goes like seven. It, there's a huge gap. There's seven weeks in between the last backup to the iCloud and the day of the shooting in huh. December of last year. And so because of that, the FBI wants Apple to create a way for it to get access the phone's data. Yeah. All right. So the FBI says it's just one phone, not that big of a deal. Yeah. Apple doesn't agree so much. Yeah. And let's note this. We, we did mention it wasn't anything new, but before Apple had complied with, you know, getting access to the iCloud, um, the FBI is doing something a little bit different here. What they want is access um, to this phone, and they're asking Apple to essentially build an iOS system that will allow them access to this phone. And Apple's contention is doing so, which does not exist today, will create a backdoor. Because once we create something, then there's now a backdoor against the encryption that we do have on our iOS phones. So the question is whether or not this is pressing enough to then raise security concerns if Apple were to go ahead and do something like this. Yeah, so it's really interesting to me the basis, the legal basis on which the FBI is relying on and which apparently the judge has agreed because as of right now, there is an order from a judge for Apple to comply with the FBI's request. Yes. And they use this all writs uh, act, which dates back to like nine, no, 1789 or something uh, on that order, something way back, which was used to just say that uh, if there's an order from a judge to come to uh, cooperate in some way that you have to basically cooperate, you have to do your best to try yeah. and honor that order. And Apple has said what they're asking us to do and comply with this order is to create a software that doesn't exist and which may very well work against everything that it has 
sort of relied on and made its reputation. Yeah, and it's a worry for consumers because once you build a back door, now something does exist and it can be exploited. So it may not just be used for the cell phones of criminals, but it may be used you know, against ordinary people that have committed no crime. Right. So uh, Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, says it's just not true that what yeah. the FBI is asking them to do applies only to this one phone. Yeah. And then the larger concern is, okay, so it doesn't apply to this one phone. It could apply to anybody's phone that they got a search warrant for. Yeah. So in this case, we should talk about the fact that the Fourth Amendment privacy is not really an issue for two reasons. Yeah. First, because this phone was technically owned by San Bernardino County. It was the, the guy's phone. Right. It was yeah. his work phone. And so he has no claim to privacy. Yeah. And there's no reasonable expectation of privacy on a phone that your employer gives you. And then the second reason is that in this case, there was a warrant. Yes. So they they took the proper protocols and they do have a warrant and now they have this um, injunction. So now there's this sort of next step is like, how far does Apple have to go to cooperate? And really, should they? And should they do so on, on an order that relies on law that has nothing to do with this and which is like 200 some odd years old. Well, typically if you get a court order, you can't really, you know, you can't question um, the law behind it unless you're just going to appeal. Which it appears they intend to do. And there are a lot of legal commentators suggesting that this may go all the way up to the Supreme Court. On the other hand, there are people, including um, Congressman Ted Lieu, who's saying like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This should be a discussion for the legislature. Yeah rather than having Apple and the FBI do this with sort of public commentary, because we've been invited to sort of give our opinions because Tim Cook last week sent out an open letter to everyone informing them of, or informing all of us, of what Apple's position is, which is this is just way too much. And I personally tend to agree with Apple. I mean, I want the... the investigation to be full and complete into the San Bernardino shooters. It would be... I mean, great justice for the victims. It would be great to know if there was connection to ISIS, but then there's always a cost to that. And I don't know if it's out, and I don't believe it's outweighed by the rest of our um, privacy concerns. I I don't think that they're going to get um, something that's worth everything that we're going to have to give up in order to make it happen. I don't know that we're really giving up anything, though, because what Apple seems to be claiming is more of a, a misuse of what they would create in order to to access this phone. That the creation of such then means it exists and that that, that existence could be misused or the government could come in again and, um, on another grounds, ask Apple to, to help. But I think when you're dealing with this particular situation where they do have a warrant, we're looking at an act of terrorism and it, this may prevent future harm that may have greater national security implications. I think this is a particular case where it can be distinguished against future cases as to why you would want access to this phone and why Apple should comply. Well, I have a concern about it for two reasons. First, if such a suf- if they create software like that is able to get past the passcode or stop the phone from self-destructing if you've yeah. entered the passcode too many times unsuccessfully. Which is a concern by the FBI right. if they may be trying to brute force attack this phone. Right. First, there's a way for hackers, not the FBI, hackers, yeah. to get in to all of our phones. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is I wonder what if today was a day and age of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And what if, you know, we do know that the government felt threatened back then. And so what if back, you know, we're trying to do something similar to to, we move the 1960s to today. 
uh, a, a huge group of people is trying to peacefully protest to overcome what they think is an infringement of their rights. Mm. Is this going to... I would think that this technology might be used to impede our ability to do that. Uh, again, as long as we can distinguish, you know, we're looking at... Uh, a guy who had contact with ISIS and outside... Well, we don't know that. That's well, what they are hoping to find in the phone. Well, but, we do know that they were radicalized. Or at least, yes, that's true. Yeah, the wife was radicalized and she came over and radicalized him. And so I, I think we can easily distinguish these cases against future cases. Um, and so I'm not concerned in, we're in, I, in that area. Do you, I, I think there were people who called Martin Luther King Jr. a terrorist. So all you got to do is call somebody a terrorist and then anybody associated with them, their phone is open to I, the government. Well, I, I would say the civil rights movement and those arguments are largely different than what we're seeing today with beheadings and killings um, of um, innocent civilians. What about ISIS. the argument that in, in infringing upon our own civil rights is actually letting the terrorists win? That, that what they want is for us to change our way of life and that we're doing that because we're so afraid of them that we're now starting to give up bits and pieces of the life that makes us American. Well, I think there's some credence I, to that. To some degree, but when I think about you know 9-11, the amount of lives lost and how the information data gathering could have possibly prevented um, what happened and that th- they showed they had bits and pieces of information they were just unable to connect together to you know thwart that that whole plot it makes me think what if this is one of those pieces that might be needed for something in the future and I think we have enough evidence to show that our national security is at stake at this state um, at this point in time from groups like ISIS and what if a group like ISIS could hack into our phones well I you know I I think I do have enough faith in the FBI and Apple and their security protocols. I think this is really good press for Apple. You know, Tim Cook gets to come out. looks like he's fighting for the little guy. Um, and, and really, he's also fighting for Apple. This is great optics for Apple to make it seem like they got the most secure phones. Not even the government can get to them, and the government needs their help to get to it. So I think the longer they kind of drag this out, it's just great press. But I do think there is the harm of not discovering something sooner rather than later. I think beyond press, this, this is a, a good thing to drag out and take it through the courts yeah. and to make sure every level of appeal is exhausted. And the, if the Supreme Court wants to eventually force Apple to comply, then so be it. But I do think, and I am thankful to Apple, yeah. that they are appearing, it seems that they're going to be willing to take it through the courts. And what's interesting is that one of the four main attorneys for Apple, his wife actually died on Flight 77. Oh, wow. Uh, on 9-11. And so you would think he has every reason to want into yeah. uh, the cell phone data. And he used to be uh, a prosecutor on, and work for the D- Department of Justice. And now he is um, sort of a, a tech attorney for a lot of well, big companies, including Apple. So I don't think that this is just press attention related. I mean, the Tim Cook letter a- was a really nice... App, Apple ad piece, you know? <laughs> sure, but I am not mad at that at, at all. I think it's a really worthy discussion to bring no, the public so, yeah, into. It's a great discussion. And while I'm not a techie, I do wonder if as easily as they could create this iOS that might help the FBI, they could close whatever loophole they think they're opening. I, it seems to me that they probably have the tech know-how to make sure that they change their iOS or change whatever it is they're able to build that might um, lead to a backdoor. But again, I don't know, but I think Apple may be kind of crying foul a little too loud here. 
Oh, I don't know. I, I'm I'm with the I'm with you, Apple. So I, I'm excited to see sort of how this turns out. Yeah. I, I would say excited slash a little bit nervous. nervous yeah, because I, I don't want to see it, see it have too many broader implications. But I do think I, in this particular case, I would like to see it applied here. I mean, I normally am not in agreement with the slippery slope argument, but yeah. I could just see how you know the government just calls anything terrorism. Yeah. Uh, we've already seen how it seems to arbitrarily be used or not used. Like we were talking about how in the Charles. Charleston uh, church shootings, they nobody ever used the term terrorism. Yeah. So it's a very arbitrary term, and it's it's not reliable enough to where I think I, I would be afraid that you know some group that wants to um, some grassroots group that wants to change the law or challenge the status quo lawfully might be. Um, impeded or, or thrown in jail. I mean, here, I, yeah. we're, I'm going to jump way ahead to the yeah. end of our rundown. Yeah. But uh, there's a, a guy in Louisiana who mm. was just released from prison yeah. after being in solitary confinement for 43 years. Three yeah. years. I mean, is that cruel and unusual? I, I, I think it fits yeah. the, the, the definition. And he was in there for a murder that he was never even certainly convicted of. He was convicted yeah. and it was overturned. And then 92 was overturned. And then, yeah, it was overturned twice. He was L7, tried right? twice. Yeah, it was uh, overturned in... 92. And then again in 2008. Yeah. And then the government hasn't put him on trial for the third time. Again, for the supposed killing of a prison guard, yeah. which many people say he was actually framed. Yeah, because of his political um, ideology. He was a member of the Black Panthers. Yeah. And so that sort of brings it home to me so you know if this if the black panther movement was alive and well today and they were trying to get uh civil rights addressed would they be quashed by you know somebody uh, getting into their phone and arresting them and putting them in solitary confinement uh, uh, because he wasn't the only one there was two other guys in the group that were in there for like 30 years also I mean, I, I see what you're saying, but I, I just think this case is so distinguishable from those cases. I mean, we, we have them dealing with an outside group that's not a that's not from the United States. We and this outside group has public videos killing innocent civilians and you know say, asking for demands on the United States. I, I think it's easy to qualify what ISIS is doing as terrorism. I but we don't yet know that ISIS is connected to these people. Well, we we knew that these people are radical. I didn't. Didn't they do this in the name of ISIS? I don't know yeah. if there was any clear connection. Radicalized, yeah. yes. ISIS, unclear. Well, what we do know is that they came from this country from from which there has been a lot of ISIS activity, and they came in and they shot people um, based on a, a particular ideology of Islam. And so whether or not they connected that directly to ISIS, I think we've, we've shown, or at least we've called out, when you have this radical um, idea of Islam and you're also killing innocent civilians, that equals terrorism. All right. So here's another uh, aspect to this story that I thought was interesting. What if it was the Chinese government asking Apple to do this? Mm-hmm. Would we be supportive of that? I certainly would not. If it if it were the Chinese government and it was something you know involving a terrorist in China and they felt that that was for their national security... I would trust Apple to do it in a way that, you know, secured everyone. Because this is another aspect that's been brought about. So any country can then go and demand Apple comply with whatever it wants it to do. Uh, Insofar as Apple's interested in operating fully in that country, I think, I I think, I I think they they have to take a broad view of what's, what's actually happening. 
And at least in this country, we have these certain laws and we have the, I can't speak for what's going on in China in terms of what laws they have, what safe checks they do have, but I can speak for what's going on in the United States. And I think in this particular case, I think that it does not lead to a slippery slope because we have very distinguishing characteristics for this case. Yeah. Well, this is clearly a case that affects us all. I mean, you and I both have iPhones and so I will be watching this very closely. closely, We'll be sharing whatever developments come up. All right. And so now the Kesha and Dr. Luke drama. So this one is really um, confusing for most people because what we know is that Kesha has accused her producer, Dr. Luke, of drugging her, raping her, assaulting her, abusing her. And then she tried to get out of this um, basically a six album deal with Sony. And what we all saw a couple of days ago was Kesha crying and the image of her crying in court and that she it seems that she would have to produce these albums. But what I don't think people realize is that this was a preliminary injunction. Kesha has not completely lost here. This is There's no finality here. Um, and that, that part even confused me. And I realized it was a preliminary injunction. And to, to kind of describe this, you have to go back a little bit further. So Kesha um, has a sexual assault civil suit against Dr. Luke. In response to that civil suit, Dr. Luke filed a breach of contract. Um, and what Kesha's lawyers realized is that it was going to take some time for these suits to be litigated, and Kesha wanted to get out of the contract now. I, and I thought, because an injunction means to me, you momentarily stay something until something else is yeah. figured out sometimes. So I thought that what she or her attorney was asking for was just that this contract be put sort of like on a time out yeah. until the sexual assault matter could be litigated. And then the d- outcome of that would influence whether she could get out of the contract or not. No, it seems Kesha's lawyers are saying, look at the facts here, judge, and she's going to get out of this contract at the end of the day. So can we just get out of it right now, as opposed to having to wait for these um, other um, other processes to bear out? And so the judge said, Basically, I don't have enough information to show that she may prevail or not prevail or that this this contract somehow um, would be harmed if she were to perform and they were to all meet their um, different duties per the contract. And so there's this whole part about, well, she can't get out of the contract with Sony. She can just work with somebody else. Yeah. And the way I understand it is that she is not even signed to Sony directly. She is signed to Dr. Luke's uh, company who is signed to Sony. So Sony really even is, is almost stuck here. I think a lot of people have become anti-Sony. But Sony cannot actually let her out of this contract, cannot let Kesha the person Right, out of the so contract. this PR nightmare for Sony yeah. uh, is a pretty raw deal for them because they don't actually have the say. It's Dr. Luke himself who does. Yeah, because she signed directly with Dr. Luke, who then negotiated this contract with Sony for Kesha to provide the six albums. Okay, so the whole thing about you can t- extract Dr. Luke and she can work with other producers in Sony doesn't make sense to me because she's not actually signed to Sony. She's signed to Dr. Luke's well, recording um, contract, whatever it is. So the, how does that make sense? Because in the contract, she can use producers who both sides agree on. And Sony and um, the company that she signed with Dr. Luke have agreed that she doesn't have to work with Dr. Luke. And then everybody's saying that I have I've read that... Ultimately, though, anybody that works with Kesha has to report to Dr. Luke, because, so he's yeah. involved anyways. Uh, yeah, and, due, and due to the fact that it's his company that they, they're kind of operating in his best interest. However, Sony's really in charge of the marketing promotion of the album. And I think part of the allegations were that you know Sony would be less interested in marketing it in the way it should be marketed because Dr. Luke is far more valuable to them than Kesha. However, Kesha's success 
which would be Dr. Luke's success, is also Sony's success. So Sony is invested in having Kesha do well. So everybody is seeing this as, you know, the law forces a woman to work for her rapist, for her abuser. Yeah. Is that a fair... Well, I think interpretation, that, you think? No, not at all. I think this goes back to the slippery slope that we're talking about. And here, here's what the judge was looking at. The judge was looking at that the, they didn't have enough facts right now to determine who should prevail on any of these merits. We're looking at the fact that there has been no criminal charges filed against Dr. Luke. And we're looking at what the judge has in front of them now. And what the judge does know is that a very complicated contract was negotiated. And it serves... Um, our contract law and our, and, you know, our businesses and our corporate structure in the United States to be able to rely on contracts that were reasonably negotiated that are standard for the industry. Because once those contracts are no longer um, seen as valid or seen as reliable, then we kind of have a chilling effect on creating these contracts and a chilling effect on business and uh, ultimately the economy. So the only way for Kesha to have had a different outcome yeah. is that in the contract itself – she would have had to include a clause that said, if somebody rapes me, abuses me, drugs me, then I can get out of this contract. Do we have to start being that crazy explicit no. in our contracts? No, I think it's so far because, remember, these are still allegations and these are civil suits that are filed. You know, there's been there's been no criminal investigation, none that's been started, and that does make you wonder as to why. Did Kesha not report this to the police? Did she, did she report it to the police and they decided there was not enough evidence to move forward with I Dr. I mean, there's Luke? been a lot of parallels to Bill Cosby. You yeah. know, why didn't people report it back then? Dr. Luke is probably not on the scale as, as Bill Cosby, but in the music industry, he is pretty, you know, well up there. And people like Kesha may be afraid to come forward. She was a young girl. She was 18 at the time. But by the time she filed her suit, it was still within the statute of limitations. So she filed her civil suit within the statute of limitations for Dr. Luke to be criminally charged. But with what evidence? I mean, she... I mean, it's, it's just, you know, he said, she said, because there was no you so, know, so rape na- kit or anything like that. So, you know, while while I don't want to accuse anyone of lying or not lying, we don't want to then say during a he said, he said, she said situation that that can remove you from a very complicated contract. Yeah. I mean, we need to have so- some reliability for the con- reliability for the contracts that we make in business. And once again, both sides agreed that she didn't have to work with Dr. Luke. And again, this is a preliminary injunction. So depending on the way the sexual assault case goes and the, the breach of contract case goes, she may get a permanent injunction at the end of the close of those cases to be out of this contract. Right. So the good news is that it's not over for Kesha. Yeah. She may very well come out ahead when all is said and done. But yeah. for right now, she's sort of stuck complying with yeah. this contract. And I think you need to have you need to have some bar as to what would allow someone out of a commercially reasonable contract. And right now, there just is not enough evidence to bear fruit that she should be let out of this contract. Not yet. All right. All right. Um, that's a tough one. All right. So let's move on to Amber Rose claiming that she is a subject of constant sexual assault yeah. in her in her line of work. I'm not sure what you would call it, but she is often, she says, the subject of uh, unwanted grabbing, touching, fondling, which technically meets the definition of sexual assault, unwanted yeah. touching of the sexual nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but it just seems to me a little interesting that she would, after, I mean, listen, I don't really follow her, but what I do see of her is constant sexual images put out. And so should people, uh, people have to know that as much as somebody puts themselves out there like that, you can't touch them, even though they put their 
assets yeah. out on display yeah. for everybody. Yeah, they should know that. So that part, okay, fine, is pretty cut and dry. The secondary part of this uh, interview that I saw her do where she's complaining that she's constantly asked if people can touch her boobs was the part that was like, all right, you lost me there. Like, I understand what she's trying to do with the slut walk and trying to say that she, you know, is, is sexually assaulted. But then she goes so far as to say, why are people asking me all the time if they can touch my breasts? So she loses credibility with me when she does that, because that I see it as like, I would get upset that somebody asks me for my legal opinion all the time. Well, I put myself out there as a lawyer. Oh, I, I, I think the two are different, you know? Um, yeah, I just, I, you know, we have, we, I think we got to watch our language on this, what we complain about. I mean, yes, nobody should be touching anybody yeah. unwanted and you have to get permission because if she's offended by it and you did not ask explicitly, can yeah. I touch your whatever? Yeah. And I think she, and I think she's complaining about all of it. The, the, the questions, but also the random touches and the random grabs where no one is asking those questions. Yeah. And I, I mean, I hate to play devil's advocate and there is some, you know, a lot of people argue, well, when you put yourself out there like that, you objectify yourself. Yeah. It's not that uh, off base for somebody else to objectify you too. I can see that part of it. I don't agree with it ultimately. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, can you rape a prostitute? Of course you can. You know, just because you are in a line of work, whatever that work may be, that might make more people prone to bad behavior, it still does not excuse the bad behavior. Right. So, so as, as, I mean, because she makes herself so sort of relatable, accessible, I think is almost the word in that way. So I would, I, I could see how. Some people, perhaps less sophisticated, would just say, you know, it's in their face all the time. It yeah. seems like, you know, they just, it, it's so right there all the time yeah. that, you know, but I think they should ba- have right to it. But I think a basic understanding of marketing and media, you know, people know that sex sells, but it doesn't mean I, I as a person consent to you touching me or even feel comfortable with you asking me certain questions as I feel cross the line. You think questions cross the line? Can I, t- you know, yeah. have you ever had that? I mean, you've done yeah, work done. where your physique is on display. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, coming to LA, did a lot of fitness competitions. And so, and those were shirtless competitions and backstage or during the auditorium, you got a lot of inappropriate questions of whether people could touch you or some people would just outright touch you or snap a picture um, of themselves touching you when you didn't consent to doing so. Um, and a lot of times, sometimes it's all right, and other times it just feels creepy and a little bit weird. But and if somebody asks, you can say no. You can say no, but sometimes, and especially for, and, and again, here I am, a young male. You know, she might feel more threatened when a, a male is doing that, or another female, it just, it might be a situation where she's so uncomfortable, she can say no, or she feels like she has to say yes, or they're rolling the cameras, and it feels like it might be a media thing if she says no in a way oh, that's... Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's where my sympathy starts to wane. I, I think if we all have a level of respect for people as individuals, we're good, and we understand that what you might portray, especially in today's world of social media where you are using it as a tool to market yourself, it's not like who you are as a, a real person. I think people need to start distinguishing between what they see online and what they might see in person. But I think that's easy to say, except when somebody markets themselves to look like they're so accessible to you and relatable to you and you can communicate with them via Twitter. I mean, so it blurs the line. They're blurring the line intentionally and then the consumer has to remember that there is a line. It seems a little bit unfair. This is not to say that anybody should touch her, that she doesn't allow to, but 
I'm a little like, please, with the offended at the questions. You can say no to the unwanted touching. You could say no to sex when you want. Just, it's the same word. No, but you're yeah, who, allowed to say it. But, you know. Let's you, not complain about these it. people are covered 24-7. And if you're with your kid going to the airport and these are the questions you're getting, it, it, you know, I, it, maybe if she's opening up a strip club and that's a question she gets, okay, time, place, and manner. But I, I definitely kind of sympathize, sympathize with her for her frustrations. All right. That's very kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this, I read this story and I was like, how is this not a hate crime? Yeah. This was so terrible and I cannot believe that this happened here in California. Mm-hmm. So a college campus, San Jose State University, which is in Northern California, uh, three white guys were arrested, charged, and convicted only with misdemeanor battery for tying some sort of bike, a bike walk yeah. around a black student's neck, calling him three-fifths, mm-hmm. drawing swastikas on the whiteboard in his room, yeah. also displaying a Confederate flag yeah. in his dorm room. He didn't actually complain about it. I think his it's parents... Some, it's some, yeah, his parents saw the three-fifths written on the whiteboard and asked him, what is this? Yeah. And, you know, if you don't remember from your history class, three-fifths is the reference to sort of how much... They were counting black people, three-fifths of a person. Oh, right. So yeah. um, so clearly offensive, clearly race-related. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, if this is not a hate crime, I must not know what it means. So I went out and looked at it again. And it just means a criminal act committed in whole or part because of one of the following disability, gender, nationality, race, or ethnicity. That's the California penal code. Yeah. It seems to me cut and dry. Right. Yeah. So can do do you can you imagine why these 12 jurors would have not convicted him of the hate crime? Well, again, the jury was six men, six women, and we there were no black people on the jury and and I think that may have played into it and I think they probably sympathized to some degree with um you know the guys that did this, and they may have balanced taking away a significant part of their lives versus um, this particular charge. I I I'm offended. I just I don't. I mean, it, I don't it, know it, how mu- how much more blatant does it need to be? And, and these are the things that lead to that feeling of you know when you talk about Black Lives Matter, these are the situations where people feel that Black lives don't matter. So then they want to say, you know what, Black lives do matter. I think we talked about Black Lives Matter too, and that might be a better, you know, hashtag. Right? Yeah, and I, I totally understand anybody who looks at this case and wonders what's wrong with the criminal justice system, yeah. and and how can we be upset that there's a Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. uh, when we have stories like this? Um, yeah, really upsetting. And then same with um, coming back around to the solitary confinement story. Yeah. You know. 43 years. I mean, I cannot even imagine that. I have not even been alive for 43 years. And that meant that meant 23 hours in the jail cell alone and one hour of exercise in the yard alone. Right. And so this, this cell, he was like six by nine. And yeah. then when he was out in the quote unquote yard, yeah. it was not really a yard. It was like a slab of cement enclosed by a gate where he was shackled and there was nobody else around. Exactly. And studies are showing, I can't even believe we need studies to show this, yeah. but you know, prolonged solitary confinement causes a host of mental and emotional uh, problems. I think I, I read in the article or maybe this was a nightmare, that he was afraid that he might start screaming and yelling and, and not be able to stop. stop. Or cut off his own testicles. Yeah, he, I, and, and, I read that, and yeah. I, because 
he was afraid of that because he had seen other people do it. And he was starting, he was breaking. You know, you hear these mental breaks. God knows how solitary confinement really affects you on a day-to-day level. I can't possibly imagine for 43 so years. we talked about solitary confinement recently because President Obama banned it for juveniles. juveniles yeah. And I, I had no idea that solitary confinement was used for this length of time. Yeah. Um, or do you agree it's cruel and unusual? Oh, absolutely. 43 years. I mean, my idea of solitary confinement was, you know, some sort of prison disciplinary and maybe a week, two weeks, you know. I, I didn't, 43 years is beyond the pale. Definitely yeah. way over whatever line you decide to mark in your book as cruel and unusual. So this man, uh, Alfred, Albert Woodfox, has now yeah. dedicated his life to raising awareness yeah. about the use of solitary confinement, the damages that it caused, and perhaps changing the law. I mean, I, I, I think we suggested this on that show when we talked about President Obama's banning the juvenile um, solitary confinement, that there should be a hearing yeah. just for use yeah. of solitary confinement. Or some, some reasonable oversight that, you know, makes sense, it's practical. But, you know, you can have you have several probation hearings. I don't see why you can't have solitary confinement hearings with some oversight along the way. Yeah, so he is the guy who served the longest in history of, I mean, yeah. of solitary confinement. But there were other people that he was... Convicted so, with, yeah. Right, who had also spent 30-some-odd years in yeah. solitary One confinement. One was let out in 2001, and I think the other was let out in 2013 and then died two days later. I mean, I, yeah. yeah. Okay. Not much justice being served in, in, in that case, but, um, we hope that this has raised massive awareness for you, yeah. uh, on these issues. And this is a bit of a dark day stories yeah. <laughs> of, and the legal news. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us. We will be back next week for another episode of justice is served. I, uh, can be tweeted at Chelsea Galicia. And uh, I can be tweeted or Instagrammed at Shaka Strong. Please download us on iTunes. Give us five stars. And tweet at us. Leave us comments on YouTube. We'd be happy to answer any questions you have. See you next time. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Christie, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us info at blackhollywoodlive.com like us on facebook tweet us or instagram us at bhl online and i am the official voice of black hollywood live Scipio, instagram at king xo bay thanks for tuning in hollywood redefined the views expressed here are those of the and do not necessarily reflect the views of bhl or its owners or principals